Please be seated. I want to say again, well, he's going to have a word of thanks to, to Sam Lindsay. Sam steps in and leads when John's away, and I'm always very thankful for that. Thank you, Sam, for his leadership. And it was also good this morning. Um, we, I joked in the, in the middle service that we kind of we pulled the rug out from underneath Sam. We said to him a number of weeks ago, we said, Sam, can you, do you mind? John's going to be gone this weekend, and he's, he's at University of Miami at the music school doing a, um, a lecture. He's teaching or speaking. He's doing something, something important, I'm sure. And, um, but we said, Sam, can you lead? He's like, yeah, yeah, I can step in and lead. And then we said, oh, by the way, half the band's going to be gone. So, um, you know, and so it was, but, but I say that because uh, Ella stepped in to drums as well. So it was great to see her up here this morning. And, and you know, it, it's wonderful the way people just step up and it is a gift. Um, and so, Sam, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, another thing, because something happens, some of you don't realize this, but there's an invisible um, kind of, um, there must be some sort of a magnetic field when you come up on stage, because every conversation I have on the floor, I forget when I walk up here. And so right before worship, I was back, I was talking to Julie, and I was talking to Joe, because there's an Eagle Scout ceremony today, the High Court of Honor, Jay McNaughton, where are you at, Jay? He left, well, forget it, never mind, I'm not even going to talk to him. Uh, okay, uh, Jay, Jay, who's bouncing around here somewhere, Jay is... Um, getting recognized or awarded, I don't know the proper verbiage, as an Eagle Scout. He and some of the other Eagle Scouts are going to be doing that today. Really proud of, of him and, and them. That's an incredible accomplishment. Some of you know how much work that is. Uh, and, uh, and so one of the things that I was supposed to say is that after the service, we're not touching the middle section, but we're going to stack the sides because they're going to be changing things around in here. So if you're able to, after the service, we're going to stack the chairs, just each row, just stack them up against the wall. So those of you that are able to do that, um, you know, that's the bonus you get for coming at 11 o'clock. <laughs> that's the present. See, 815, they don't get that, 945, but you all are special. So um, anyway, so that's, that is, uh, that's going on today. So we, uh, we're going to turn our attention in just a moment to Luke chapter 8. And I piggybacked a little bit as in, in my process. I was reading over the scripture this, this week, kind of preparing again for the message. And um, my mind went back to last week when I was talking about, if you were here last Sunday, talking about um, Murphy's Law and some of the other things that, you know, those kind of pessimistic laws of, about how life just never quite works out the way that we expect it to. And so we talked about Murphy's Law. And as I read the scripture, I thought of another one. It's not Murphy's Law, but it was another one of those cliches and sayings that, that we hear fairly frequently that says this, no good deed is left unpunished, or no good deed goes unpunished, no good deed is left unpunished, and it speaks to that reality that sometimes, I shouldn't say reality, but that experience that sometimes we have, that, that we do something good, we do something motivated out of generosity or love or compassion for all the right reasons, and sometimes it doesn't turn out the way that we think it should or the way that it should. And it's funny when I use some of these examples because I'll have people come up to me after services and say, well, you know, I did this once and this is how it turned out. And this, they kind of give me their own illustrations. Uh, but the, the reason, one of the, the stories I came across that had me thinking about this in relation to the, the gospel text, which we'll get to in a minute, was the, the story of a woman by the name of Sheila Hall. 
She recently passed away, which is how I kind of found her story. But Sheila lived in East um, Baltimore, or as some Maryland person said to me, there's no T in Baltimore. So Baltimore, 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 okay, Maryland. Um, and, um, uh, but uh, but she, she lived in that city, and um, she uh, had a salon. She had a salon, and it was in a, in a neighborhood that had a lot of drug problems, a lot of people using drugs, selling drugs, high crime area. So she wanted to do a little bit to make a difference and keep her customers a little safer and the children in the community safer. So she started going out in the mornings, and she would pick up the, the, the drug paraphernalia, the, the trash, the things that had been left, and get it off the street, and she'd, you know, dispose of it in the, in the proper containers, and then she took it to a, a city-owned dumpster, and she was putting it in the dumpster to be hauled away. The city found out she was doing it and fined her for dumping personal trash in a city dumpster. They fined her for it, and the story was, you know, there was outrage in, 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 in Baltimore about this. And I don't know how it ended. I, I couldn't find a story about whether they ever rescinded the fine. But, but it spoke to me about that, you know, you're doing something good. She was doing something to make a difference. She was doing something. It wasn't for her own. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of things she could have been doing besides picking up trash every morning. But she was doing it, and no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, sometimes there, there are serious stories of that. Sometimes they're not as serious. There was another one I read uh, about a, a woman who said to her husband, I am happy and willing and able to do the yard work. I will cut the grass. I'll keep the, the yard looking nice. You just, I just need you to provide for me and, and keep the lawnmower working properly. Keep that. You keep that working, and I'll take care of the yard work. Now, most of us would love that deal, but her husband just couldn't get it. He just couldn't get it. The lawnmower was always breaking down. It never got through. He just didn't seem to get her pleas and her hints to, to, to keep this thing working so I can actually get the, the lawn mowed. So finally she decided, I've got to get through to him. I've got to kind of get his attention. So one day the lawnmower had broken. So as he's coming home, he, he gets to his house, and he finds her sitting in the grass, in the tall grass, with a pair of sewing scissors, just cutting <laughs> the grass. And he walks up, and, and he, just, he just looks at her. And he walks in the house, didn't say a word. And she thought, what's he doing? A minute later, he walks back out, and he hands her a toothbrush. And she said, a toothbrush. And he said, she said, why are you giving me a toothbrush? And he said, well, I thought when you were done cutting the grass, you could sweep the sidewalk. Now, I don't know how that ended for him, but she was holding sharp object at the, moment, at the time, so I don't think it ended well. Now, lighthearted, you know, obviously didn't get it. No good deed goes unpunished. A more serious one with Sheila's story. That, that's a, a segue. That's the bridge into the Scripture because the Scripture is, as we often find in the Gospels, it's a story of, of Jesus, Jesus compassion and his power at work and his healing, but it's a story that leads to a, an act of grace and, and love leads to basically an escort out of town. I mean, at the end, to, to give away the, the text, you know, it, it's not warmly received 
And, and it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting contrast in that. But really what I want to kind of dig into is the, the motivation underneath it all. So, so we turn our attention to Luke chapter 8 and pick up at the 26th verse. And we read, and it starts with they, and, and always to contextualize this, the they here is Jesus and the disciples. So it says, they sailed to the region of the Gesserines, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this to the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that we would hear and receive and be open to your word and to your voice as you speak your truth into our lives. Bless these words that I speak. By your Holy Spirit, may they be pleasing to you. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. So, as I was preparing for the message this morning, I, uh, I started thinking about monsters. It's not even a joke, and y'all are laughing. I started thinking about monsters, and, and I kind of made a list. But before I get into my list, let me ask you this. When, when I say the word monsters, tell me what do you think of? And don't name somebody sitting next to you. Um, but but what, do you, what do you think of when I say monsters? Scary, okay. Or, or maybe specifically, who do you think of? Manson, okay, yeah, that's a real-life monster. No. Who? Godzilla. Ted Bundy, okay, so yeah, so we've got the, I heard Godzilla. Frankenstein, or Frankenstein's monster, who do you? Sully. That's what... Yeah, that's what Cat Tony said, the same thing, Mike and Sully. 
um, from the Disney movie, if those of you don't know that. Anybody else got one they think of? Yeah, okay, yeah, those. So, so here's what, what, what comes to mind. It's interesting. You know, some of you name some real-life monsters. I mean, human beings that, that have done unspeakable things. And then some of us go to um, literary or cinematic monsters. Uh, that's where I went. And, and this, this isn't a test. It's not a, you know, better or worse. It's just the way that we process, the way that we think of. I started thinking about the monsters that are created a lot of times in fiction. I started thinking of Frankenstein's monster was one. I, I thought about Dracula. Uh, I, I, I thought about, I'm a big uh, fan of the Lord of the Rings and J.R.R. Tolkien. So I thought of uh, the Nazgul, if you're familiar with that story. Uh, Greek mythology, you have Medusa and Krakens and Cyclops. There's a whole bunch of monsters in, in, um, in Greek mythology. If, if you're more modern literature, if you're a Stephen King fan, and in it, there's Pennywise. You know, there are, there are all these, these figures, sometimes, sadly, they're real-life figures, but, but in these, they're literary figures that, that you want to stay a distance from. They're all the kind of people or individuals or entities you want to keep away from you. You know, if you're reading these stories, you don't want to see them, and certainly the real-life examples. Monsters are those, those um, a representative of those kind of people that we don't want anywhere near us because they are threat or harmful or, or, or evil in some ways, and sometimes very obvious ways. And, and I use that to set up because that is the backdrop for Jesus' encounter with this man on the opposite side of, of Galilee, on the Gesserian shore, because this man that encounters Jesus is seen by his community as a monster, as a living, breathing live entity, uh, because they wanted him as far away from them as possible because of his behavior, because of his, his, um, his possession, as the scriptures say. He, he runs around naked. He lives in the tombs. At one point, they, they have him chained and watched. Again, how do you keep somebody dangerous, safe from harming others? You chain them up. You lock them up. They chain them up. They're, they're watching him. He breaks the chains. They, they can't contain him. And, and he is this embodiment of that kind of person. They don't want anyone to be near. And so they react, I imagine, when they'd see him, the same way we react when we see people like that. You stay as far away as possible. I, I mean, that, that's just our natural reaction for most of us. Maybe I shouldn't project everybody, but, but I, that's my reaction. In, in life, when I encounter people, in public and just being out that seem unhinged, unbalanced, um, threatening in some way, I, I create as much distance as I can. It's, it's human nature. I, I remember a few years being at a department store and, um, you know, in a mall. And, and there was a guy that was just shopping or was kind of looking around stuff the way anybody would. And he started having louder and louder conversation. The thing was, it became clear, there was nobody there to be talking to. There was nobody with him. He just started getting agitated and having this verbal conversation and, and getting more and more. And you could see his body language getting agitated and his voice was getting agitated. And there was nobody there. And, and a few of us kind of took notice of this. You know how you know, kind of start looking sideways like that? You know, like something's going, we don't want to stare, but something's happening there. And, and I very clearly remember going, you know, this doesn't seem safe. 
I don't work here. I don't really need anything that bad. I'm going to go. And I did. And I just was like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my role. It wasn't my responsibility. He's there. This doesn't seem real good. I'm going to go somewhere else. And, and that human reaction is the way a lot of us, we create distance. We create distance from those whom we see unsafe, who those, and, and, and are. I mean, this guy literally is unsafe. It's not like they're just projecting that. This guy's got, got a lot of problems going on at, this, at the beginning of the story. And, and the reason I start with all of that is because we get this other example now. Jesus shows up and it says, this man encounters Jesus. And in a situation where most of us would go the other way, Jesus does what Jesus often does. Where people are leaving, Christ is going. When, uh, to those who, who, who the, the world shuns, Christ welcomes. Uh, the places that others avoid, Jesus intentionally goes through. When he goes through Samaria, when he's traveling to Jerusalem later in the Gospels, and the disciples say, should we go around? Because that's what you did. You didn't go through. You didn't encounter those people. That's where Jesus goes. So this man encounters Jesus, and Jesus holds his ground. He didn't flee, he didn't hide. He holds his ground, and that becomes the foundation of a miracle. He casts out these demons. He casts out, literally, as this man had broken free of every chain that had physically bound him, what Jesus does is he liberates him from the, the chains spiritually that had confined him. And he, in a moment, in a moment, in an encounter with Jesus, his life is transformed. And the demons are cast out. And there's a whole another aspect of the story that's worth exploration at another time. As Jesus casts unclean spirits into an unclean animal in the Jewish tradition, which is the pigs. And the pigs then immediately, the whole herd takes a header right into the lake. And again, that's worthy of some study, but that's not today. And so, so that, that happens. But the point is, in that moment, his life is forever different. And all of a sudden, things become that were fuzzy become clear. Uh, behaviors that were dangerous become transformed. And this man begins to sit at the foot of Jesus. And it is a powerful, powerful story of restoration. It's a powerful story of Jesus meeting brokenness and, and, and speaking wholeness and healing. And, and our tendency, my tendency, is to read a story like this. I always say to us, I say to us all the time, when we read the Gospels, we read the Scriptures, we have to ask ourselves, where are we in the story? And this is a hard one, because most of us read this story and we go, well, we're not there. I mean, this guy's really on a whole other level of, of um, issues and, 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 and um, uh, illness, if you will, possession. And, and we tend to, we, we don't really, I don't immediately identify with that. But the reality is we should. We should. Not to the extreme. But the, re, the reality is we all struggle with our demons. We all struggle in a, in a figurative sense in the way that this man had a literal possession. We struggle with those things that rob us of our full humanity. Because that's what's happened here. This man has had his full humanity robbed from him because as human beings created in the image of God, we're created for relationships with God and with others. And you want, somebody, you want to lose your full humanity, take somebody out of a situation where they can have any human contact and any human relationships. We're just not meant to live completely isolated, but that was his existence, completely isolated. So, so what's happened is he's in a moment had his entire humanity robbed from him. But the, the reality is we struggle with those things that rob us of our humanity, those things that chain us, those, those demons that, that we battle. They're just not always as obvious as this. 
But for a lot of us, it's greed. Jesus says more about that than just about anything. You know that. He warns about money and greed as much as he warns about anything. But that begins to rob us of our humanity. Because when material possessions, when wealth, when money is the most important thing, when it is our number one goal, remember, you can't serve both God and money. You will love one and hate the other. The reality is when that becomes the most important thing, people become commodities. Your value, and I talked about this last week, transactional relationships. Your value to somebody, your value to me, if it's all about money, is what you can do for me. How you can help me achieve that goal. When material and wealth and possessions, that undermines relationships. You can't have a healthy relationship if it's all built about what you're going to give, what you're going to do for me. Because as soon as that doesn't get met, the relationship deteriorates. But if we're honest, if we're honest, we struggle with that. A lot of us do, not all of us. Some of us struggle with that. Some of us struggle with literal addictions. Chemical, substance, behavioral addictions that begin to undermine our relationships. That begin to undermine our connections to others. We've probably, maybe it's been your struggle. Maybe it is your struggle. Maybe it's somebody that you care about when you love about. But you know, when, when addiction is present and, and fully fully in, at work, it becomes the most important thing in that person's life. And relationships are secondary. The most important thing. I mean, how many times have we seen stories, and again, maybe you've lived this, of, of children that steal from their parents to feed an addiction, friends that steal from friends to feed an addiction. It, it's, it's a demon. And, and, and it's a real struggle in so many ways, both, like I said, both in, in behavioral addictions and, 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 and in substance addictions. Anger is a demon that we fight. When anger begins to take hold, when you've been hurt in a relationship, you've been wounded in some way, and you hold on to that, and you let that fester, it begins to poison every other relationship in your life. You begin to distrust. You, become to, you begin to expect others to let you down or hurt you and wound you. And relationships suffer. And pride is another one. But my point is, anything that begins to undermine our relationships with God and with others begins to rob us of our humanity. And we all have those fights. We all have those struggles. It may not be as obvious or as extreme as this Gesserian demoniac. But it's real. And so if we don't see ourselves at some level in this, we've missed the story. This story of hope is a story for us. Because God says, if I can do that with this guy, imagine what I can do with you when you give your heart to me. When you allow me to come in and to speak the words of hope and promise and truth into your life. And so it becomes a powerful story. Because what Jesus does is he restores the humanity and he gives the guy purpose. Don't miss the end of the story. Because it's really, really powerful because when Jesus is, again, there's that contrast. Jesus does the miracle. The people from the town come to see the miracle. They see this guy that was formerly out of his mind, running around naked. He's clothed, and he's sitting at the foot of Jesus, and they see that he's been healed. And, and you cannot miss the stark contrast. The very next thing they say is, hey, that's great. Would you leave? Go, because this is freaking us out. That's my version. It scares them. It frightens them. They don't don't believe this is real. This can't be. This guy was too far gone. He's too far out of his mind. Nobody can bring this guy back until Jesus does. And they don't know how to process it. And so they say to Jesus, leave. 
And Jesus honors the request. But before he goes, this man says, let me go with you. Let me follow you. And Jesus says to him, no, you stay here and you tell people what God has done for you. Now, I want you to know, before Paul's transformation, before Paul, the prosecutor, becomes the prophet, if you will, the apostle, there's this man, not even named, who Jesus commissions to be an evangelist. That's all it is. That's all, he's, he's evangelizing. I've told you before, we've talked about this. You want to preach, tell people what God has done for you. That's your testimony. That's the most powerful testimony of your life. You tell what people what God has done for you. And that's what Jesus says. You go do that. That's, all the, that's what the apostles did in the aftermath of the resurrection of Jesus. They told the world what God had done for them through Christ and for all of us. So Jesus not only restores his humanity, he gives them purpose. And he sends them onto the mission field. Something to live for that he had previously not had. Jesus sees something nobody else saw. They saw a monster. Jesus saw was a man. A man created in the image of God and worthy of the redemption that Christ made possible. And so it is a powerful, tremendous story of hope. But that's not all. Because on one side of the coin, this is a story that comforts us. This is what God does for us. But there's always the other side. And while it comforts, it should also convict. It's, it's amazing how often the scriptures do this. Comfort and convict. Um, compassion and challenge, if you will. Because we, we, we may see ourselves as the object of God's redemption. But do we sometimes also see ourselves as the instrument of how God communicates the truth of redemption? And what I mean by that is we should be challenged to not only experience and know that God's word and God's hope is so powerful for us, but to see people in the same way that Jesus does. To see people in the same way that Jesus does. Because so often, these individuals, in the midst of their visible chains, in the behaviors and the addictions and the struggles that we see, too often we want to create distance. We want to do what the townspeople did. Keep them over there. Because it's not safe. It's risky. It's dangerous. And we begin to see people incompletely. We see people for, for, for the present reality and not the future potential. And Jesus calls us to see people different. I'm not saying that we run in haphazardly in every circumstance and situation, that we don't use the sense God gave us. But we see the value in all people. Too often, I'm, I'll just be confessional. I am dismissive of people. I see them and I'm like, ah, I don't feel like being bothered by that. I know I'm a pastor and I shouldn't feel that way and I should love and welcome all people all the time. I'm human. That's not an excuse. It's just an honest truth. Sometimes I see the need and I go, oh, maybe not today, Lord. Maybe somebody else. And Jesus challenges me. What do I see? What do I see when I see others? Because what I think happens is we tend to be compassionate with people that share our struggles. We tend to be compassionate with people that share our Burdens are the, the, the possessive things that we struggle with. If, if it's greed and pride, we're, we tend to be more sensitive to people who struggle with greed and pride. But those who have demons that we don't fight, we tend to sometimes not understand how real and, and difficult those struggles are. And we unintentionally become dismissive. We don't see what Jesus sees. The challenge of the story, the hope, is how Jesus sees us. The challenge is for us to see others in the same way. 
and to begin to live that kind of a compassion, even in the face of people that, that sometimes make that very hard. And I'm not talking about just the extreme cases. I'm talking about the everyday uh, encounters that we have. Yesterday morning, I drove up to, uh, to Leesburg, to the, the youth camp where, where Cassie and, and uh, Emily and Casey are, are working for the summer. We've talked about this. And, and um, as, as counselors, they, uh, they're busy Monday morning through Saturday morning because the campers are there. And so they get some free time on Saturday. So Thursday was Cassidy's birthday. So Tony had been there all week, and so she had come home. And I drove up on Saturday to take Cassidy to dinner for her birthday. And so we ran some errands and picked her up, and we went and did a few things. And uh, we went to Longhorn in the villages for, uh, for dinner. And um, it took me about two minutes of sitting down at the table. And I say two minutes because that's probably how long it took, maybe a little longer for the waitress to come, um, to know that we had caught a waitress on a very bad day. Um, she clearly did not want to be there. And um, she, she wasn't, it wasn't that she was rude. She was completely non-interactive. I mean, you know, normally you sit down and, and you kind of have that expectation, the waiter or the waitress, how are you doing? Um, you know, anything I can get for you? You know, you have, you have a little bit of banter, right? Nothing. I mean, can I get you something to drink? Or, I think it was more like, what do you want? You know, that kind of a thing. I mean, she was abrupt and, and basically just completely non-interactive with us. So she, she would come, and, and I'm, I'm not, not exaggerating that at one point she came by, and, and we're like at a booth here, and she walked by, and she must have seen as she was coming that my glass was, was empty. So she walked by, she kind of right-hand swap, did a right-hand sweep, scooped it up, and just walked away to fill it, which is nice, but, I mean, literally no conversation, no anything I can get for you. None of that was happening. And, and I was getting agitated uh, because I just felt it was, I, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm a high-maintenance um, customer, but, uh, but a little common courtesy. And, and it just didn't seem to be there. And, and so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm here paying for a meal, potentially going to tip this woman, and I'm not getting what I think I deserve. <sighs> and into that, God speaks. Into the quiet of my heart, which I really resent God when he does this. Because <laughs> this happens a lot in my life. And he says, Chris, you remember the sermon you're preaching tomorrow? Yes, God. You think maybe that has something to say about how you're processing this right now? And I said, no, God, it has nothing to do with this. <laughs> Mind your own business. Um, but I started to think about it. And, and I started to think about how I don't know her story. In that moment, I don't know what she dealt with before she got to work that day. I don't know what is home and what her realities are. I don't know her back could be. I mean, there's a million things that could have been going on in her life. And I just stepped into a moment of it. And so, and I was, I just committed myself in that moment to be as gracious and appreciative and as warm as I possibly could be. And I was really helped by the fact that I was sitting there with Cassie, and Cassie by her nature is very warm and pleasant. And she was warm and pleasant the whole time when I was being grumpy anyway. And, and so we just went out of our way to just thank you and appreciate it and just be as patient as we could. 
And I would love to tell you that there was this great breakthrough moment, and by the end of the meal, she was sitting down and talking to us, and it was none of that. But, but I will say this, the, 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 the interactions got better. She warmed up a little bit, and, and, and something happened, and this is complete conjecture on my part. I don't know if, if this had anything to do with it, but... You know, I'd said it was Cassie's birthday, and, and I noticed that I, restaurants must be different, but I noticed that at a, another table that somebody had a birthday, and they brought, you know, the dessert and the birthday, and they kind of said happy, the waitress said happy birthday, but that was it. They didn't do a big, you know, kind of song and dance for the birthday. And again, I don't know what policy is at Longhorn for this, but, but I do know this. Toward the end of the meal, she came with the dessert for Cassie, and she brought four other servers and they sat and they sang happy birthday. They did their, their version of the birthday song for Cassie. Now, was that because something happened? I don't know. It wasn't for me to know. All I know is things started to change when I started to see her differently. Instead of a waitress that was there to take care of me, I started to see somebody who, in spite of the gruffness, was worthy of, of me doing my best to love and show grace and compassion. Now, now, hear me say this, friends. I'm not up here as the model of doing that well. In this case, I may have done it well. Most of the time, I miss that voice of God. Too often, that's not my pattern. And so please don't think I'm putting myself on the pedestal. In fact, this was a challenge for me to be more intentional about those encounters, to try to see people the way that Jesus does. That's not an extreme case like the demoniac in Luke 8. But the point is, that's how Jesus saw everybody. That's how Jesus sees us. When, when others saw a monster, he saw a man worthy of God's love and redemption, and that's what he received. When I see others, when you see others in their struggles and in their burdens and in their, the, the things that take possession of us, that we fight against, what do you see? What do you see? When we commit to following Jesus, part of our challenge is to be able to see or to learn to see or to grow in the faithfulness to seeing what Jesus sees. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we are challenged by your word. I mean, it's a word of great hope. We thank you for, for the transformation that is available through faith to all who believe, for your compassion that speaks freedom into the lives of, of the life of this man and into all who follow you, that speaks freedom in our lives, that sees us for the worth and value of who we are. But our challenge, Lord, is that we'd see others the same way, love others the same way, have compassion for others the same way. Lord, help us to see what you see. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, I